As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. The presenting sponsor of The Wilderness is Honey, the easiest way to save money when shopping online. These days, it's tough to get people to agree on practically anything. But there's one thing we can all get behind. Saving money. What, what are some other words for money, John? Cash. Dinero. Cheddar. Moolah. <laughs> Simoleons. Dollar, dollar bill. <laughs> Honey is a free shopping tool that automatically searches the internet for the best promo codes every time you buy something online. Honey believes that everyone deserves the best prices possible on all the things they love. That's why it works on over 30,000 sites. You catch more buys with Honey. There you go. Honey, listen to John Lovett. He's got a slogan for you. <laughs> He's been trying to communicate it. I'm so sorry we don't see it in the ad copy. In fact, Honey has already saved people $800 million online. That's almost a billion dollars with a B. <laughs> like a B. Um, that makes Honey. I went to the New York Times website the other day. Did you? And they were like, Honey promo code in case you want delivery for the New York Times. That's amazing. Now I'm already a subscriber, but, so I didn't use it. But, you know, uh, other people can. Are there any papers with real news you can get a discount on? <laughs> <laughs> Honey is free and easy to use. Honey works at over 30,000 stores online, even Amazon, so sla- which owns the Washington Post. So slather some honey on your browser today. <laughs> honey is the money-saving shopping tool that everyone can agree on. It's free to use and installs in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash wilderness. That's joinhoney.com slash wilderness. The machine is on. Hello. 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 Hey, it's John Favreau. I know we all think that the Democratic Party is perfect in every way, but if you happen to think there's room for improvement, I'd love to hear your thoughts for a new Crooked Media podcast I'm working on that'll be out this summer. So after the beep, please answer the question, what's wrong with the Democratic Party and how do we fix it? Hey John, what's wrong with the Democratic Party is that it is a party of centrist, neocon squishes who are afraid to govern in the last activist Democratic president is LBJ, which is before I was born. Um, Let's see. I think, first of all, we need to stop using the cast of the West Wing in ads and Facebook videos. Essentially, the Democratic Party is too big to function. I don't believe that you could be uh, fiscally conservative and socially liberal. The Democrats too often give in to the GOP rhetoric and their game and the way they play it. The Democratic leadership is incredibly old and they've done little to groom the next generation. They don't show a backbone, they don't show balls. I want to know why the Democratic Party does not run on a progressive agenda. I'm seeing a lot of push uh, on the left, further to the left, and obviously living in Texas, um, I think that's to our detriment. And I feel like the Democratic Party is missing a huge opportunity to target Christians in the South. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Democratic Party. It's just people are so about their heritage. The relitigation, the Bernie Hillary, like, please, we need to stop this, or we're not a party. We don't know what we stand for, where we're trying to go. 
feels like we just go from kind of election to election, grabbing onto whatever uh, issue feels salient. I just think we need young blood in there. Okay, thanks for doing this. Love y'all. Bye. The machine is off. In March of 2018, I found myself in Texas, staring out at the open wilderness because I thought it would go well with my metaphorical podcast title. Actually, I went to a town outside of Houston called Stafford to conduct my very first focus group of voters. Later, I went to Canton, Michigan, right outside Detroit, to do the same thing. I figured that before we hear from all the strategists and experts about the different challenges facing the Democratic Party, it'd be good to start by hearing from actual voters. As you just heard, we first asked people to call in and leave a voicemail with an answer to the question, what's wrong with the Democratic Party and how do we fix it? Nearly 2,000 of you called, and we went through every single message, some of which you'll hear in this episode. But I also wanted to do a more scientific sampling of voters, which is where these focus groups come in. If Democrats want to win again, some combination of three things has to happen. Number one, 2016 non-voters or third-party voters need to vote Democrat. Number two, 2016 Trump voters need to vote Democrat. Or number three, 2016 Trump voters need to stay home. Since we don't have much control over number three, I decided to talk to the first two groups of voters. In Texas, I talked mostly to 2016 non-voters or third-party voters. These are people who identify as Democrats or independents and who voted for Barack Obama in 2012. But in 2016, they either didn't vote for president or they voted for a third-party candidate. They tend to be younger and more diverse, mostly in their 20s and 30s. In Michigan, I talked mostly to the infamous Obama-Trump voters. These are people who identify as Democrats or independents who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and who then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Yes, I know it sounds crazy, but these voters are very real and they tend to be older and whiter, mostly in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Focus groups aren't perfect, the voicemails aren't a scientific sample, and what you won't be hearing in this episode are the voices of the millions of Democrats and first-time voters out there who are more energized and enthusiastic to vote in November than they've been in a really long time. But I can tell you from our Pod Save America live shows that those Democrats are out there, they make up a vast majority of our party, and they are absolutely kicking ass right now. The purpose of this episode is to hear from Democrats and independents who think the party can do better. We'll also hear from pollsters and other folks who spend a lot of time talking to Democratic voters. And hopefully by the end, we'll get a good sense of where we are so we can get a better sense of where we need to go. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to The Wilderness. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, Hello. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate y'all taking the time. For those who voted for Trump, what made you vote for Trump? He said he was going to drain the swamp. Yes. Yeah. Do you think he's drained the swamp? Oh, no. He stocked it with bigger and badder alligators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. His politics aside, I just think he's kind of a reprehensible person. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that before he was elected. Okay. But then all the skeletons started coming out of the closet. Uh-huh. Oh, the skeletons are sticking to him, though. <laughs> It's a cemetery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll start with the good news. Not one of the Obama-Trump voters I spoke to in Michigan 
had anything positive to say about the president. Nearly all of them regret their vote. I realize this may also be somewhat infuriating to hear. What did they think was going to happen when you elect Donald Trump president? But ultimately, it's a sign that the swing voters who put him over the top in 2016 may not be there for Trump in 2020. I also heard some of the 2016 non-voters and third-party voters I spoke to in Texas say that the Trump presidency has made them realize it's important to vote in 2018. Would you consider yourselves more eager to vote in this in the next midterm elections or less eager? I think more. More for you? Because I want to change. More. more for you? More. I mean, uh, let's do what we can on the ground, ground level, you know, grassroots level of, of where we are right now. It's like we, as a nation, are a reality show right now. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like the world it's a joke. is looking at us and snickering at us. It's a joke. He needs an ass whooping <laughs> from his mama. But I think if you want to change, um, if you want to see a change, you should at least do your part by voting. So I'm more inclined to vote. But the disappointment and disgust I heard about Trump didn't necessarily translate to love for Democrats or a commitment to vote from some of the people in Michigan and Texas. Mostly... They seem pretty cynical about parties and politics in general. I don't know. It just seems so pointless at times. Like, I don't know. Like, like they're saying, it's, it's like some rigged shit. Like, I don't even see the point. And you don't think that voting will, will change it much? <sighs> I mean, you want to believe that. I want to believe Because you're raised it. to believe that your vote counts, right? But yeah. then you see this shit on TV about, like, Donald Trump in that position... Like, the stupidest choice, honestly. Of all of them. Yeah, how did it happen? How? And he wins. When it came to the Democratic Party itself, I didn't hear much anger or disdain, but I didn't hear a lot of excitement and passion either. Mostly, I heard confusion. And that's what we heard in a lot of your voicemails, too. Hi, John. This is Robert calling from New York City. What is wrong with the Democratic Party? The party doesn't stand for anything clear. The Republican Party, especially in today's world, stands for tax cuts, stands for anti-immigrant, and stands for building a wall. It's really that simple for them. The Democrats need to stand for something clear, simple, and easy. It needs to fit on a post-it note. I don't know what Democrat utopia looks like, right? Like if if the government were 100% Democrats, I don't know what America would look like. I know we have more health care. They're wishy-washy. The pushovers, uh, when given real power, they don't exercise it. And I agree with that. I mean, I, I don't find Democrats to be more principled in reality. That's so frustrating to me. I think the brand of the Democratic Party right now is not very well defined. Pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson. I think for the Democratic Party, it's, I don't really know what they believe. What do they stand for? If you don't really know what a party stands for, why are you going to sign up with them? Even if you may think, well, the individual candidates may tend to hold positions that I like or... The individual people may be preferable to the Republican counterparts, or man, I don't like those Republicans. But I think that right now it is hard for a lot of voters to really answer the question, what is the Democratic Party all about? As you've heard so far, there's a good amount of confusion and disagreement over what the Democratic Party stands for. Though I will say that when I posed this question to voters in Michigan and Texas, there was a common theme to the answers. 
I think they're more on the side of the working man than yeah. the Republicans. Blue collar. Blue, yeah. Blue, collar. Blue collar. Working class. So what is your opinion of the Democratic Party today? More caring. More caring. It's more for the people. I think in the Obama era, the Democratic Party got branded as the party for young people, a party that was looking towards the future, maybe a party that was soft focus, more sort of touchy-feely. What I would hear in focus groups when I would ask people what comes to mind when you think of the Democratic Party would be that they think it's against the rich. They would say that it's the party that wants to take care of people. It was really kind of wrapped in this concept of caring. The Republican Party may be more of numbers and tough love and that sort of thing, whereas the Democratic Party is the party that is more likely to want to give you a hug. Who do you think the Democrats are fighting for most? The people. Minorities and... Um, middle class. The misfits. Yeah. The left behind. The little misfits. Man. The party of the middle class. Uh, like, for example, I have cerebral palsy. When I was a child, you know, my parents were diehard conservatives. We could never get healthcare for me because I had a pre-existing condition mm -hmm. and what Obama did and, and passed. I mean, it was just, it was for me, I'm directly affected by it. And yeah, so the party of the middle class. But just because they were branded as the party that sort of cared about the poor, cared about LGBT inclusion, cared about folks who are immigrants, did not mean that everybody felt like they were captured by one of those labels. Hi, my name is Kelly. I am 42 and I live in West Virginia. I live in a state, one of the only states actually, um, which did not go for Reagan. So this state has turned from very blue to very red in my lifetime. And I think I have some insight as to why living here. Um, and I went away to college and came back. So I feel that I have a little bit of insight as a sort of insider and outsider here. I think that the Democratic Party has sort of abandoned the middle class and lower middle class workers. In Hillary's speech at the Democratic Convention, I watched and I waited for her to mention the middle class or middle class workers or unions. It was probably 15 to 17 minutes in when she did. And that could be a slight exaggeration, but it was a long time, long enough that she probably had lost many of them by that time because they had to go to bed to get up early for work the next day. When you ask these people, why do you not like the Democratic Party? They say the same thing over again. Data scientist Dan Wagner, who worked in Obama's campaigns, and spent a lot of time talking to Obama Trump voters in red and purple states. They say you are a bunch of impotent, urban, non-understanding hypocrites that couldn't give two fucks about me or my community. I thought Dan was being a little hyperbolic here, but I did hear similar complaints in the focus groups and the voicemails, even from Democrats who've been involved in politics. I have been thinking a lot about this topic as an activist, but also as someone who loves politics and has managed campaigns and worked on campaigns. And I've been trying to put my finger on it. And I think something that is wrong is 
that it's not totally untrue, the idea that people in the Democratic Party think that they're better than everybody else um, or smarter. And I don't even exclude myself from that. But I think that's part of what brought us this election is I always thought it was um, kind of a false narrative that people felt talked down to by the party, but they really, really do feel talked down to by the party. We add fuel to the fire when we call people deplorable or tout our intellect while trying to discredit theirs. Politics has turned into a game of winning and losing, and there's no sort of common ground that people are even attempting to reach. Another thing you hear from voters is that while Republicans care too much about the rich, Democrats care too much about the poor, and that neither party is looking out for everyone else. A lot of the work that I'm doing are with independents or swing Democrats, moderate Democrats. Pollster David Binder. You do hear a lot of the Democratic Party appears to be trying to help people who won't help themselves. And that's the biggest criticism of the Democratic Party that I get from people is that they tend to be giving too many handouts, a little bit too loose with taxpayer dollars without the sort of accountability that we want to see with our money. And that, to me, is code for welfare moms and food stamps. Sue and Eric from Michigan agree. I think that they should be on the side of the working person, but with a little bit tighter rein on the checkbook because we can't spend our government into oblivion. I think the Democratic Party needs to promote social responsibility and fiscal responsibility, not just within the party, within government, but within individuals, so that people don't look at it as government as, you're going to solve all my problems. I have to teach people to solve their own problems. And I think creating a nation of people a little too dependent on being sheep. This gets all the more confusing, because later in the conversation, some of these very same voters told me that they're in favor of Medicare for all or that they want the government to do more to put people back to work. It seemed like they aren't upset about the idea of government spending in general. They're upset about government spending that doesn't seem to help them, that doesn't seem to improve their lives. Even if the government is helping them, they can't see it. In addition to confusion over what or who the party truly stands for, there's another issue that came up a lot. I'm from Tennessee. I uh, was a state house candidate back in 2016. I lost miserably to a Republican incumbent opponent, uh, but I learned a lot along the way. You know, a Democrat in Tennessee, the word Democrat here means something way different than it does in California or New York, um, even Wisconsin. Um, uh, and unfortunately, with a lot of people, it has a very negative connotation. I grew up in a family where my parents, well, they used to vote Republican. Now they're split, um, and they are also split. But I grew up being told or feeling like the term Democrat was like not a label that you would want, even if um, you identified with those with policies and um, the ideals. Like even now, I think I have a lot of friends, or at least some friends, um, who hesitate to use that word, the party, to describe themselves and will instead like use pretty much anything else, even if they are perfectly describing the Democratic Party. And I'm not really sure why that is. I've mostly grown up um, in the South as a lifelong member of the Democratic Party. Sometimes in conversation, I've described myself as an independent, just to be taken 
um, seriously and not immediately discounted as a left-wing liberal. It's not until you have a candidate, a Democratic candidate, that can break through the stigma almost of the Democratic Party so that people can view them as a person versus a Democrat. So like Obama or Bill Clinton, they were able to kind of break through. And people saw President Obama as President Obama, not Democrat Obama. Look, in 2008, 11% of our electorate were new voters, right? Democratic strategist and Obama pollster Cornell Belcher. It was a new electorate. And that's just amazing, right? I think roughly 62, 63% of that 11% were voters, in fact, under 30. But we got to understand that the bulk of that new electorate, they are Obama voters. They're not necessarily Democratic voters, right? There was a reason why these voters hadn't been engaging in the process before. And yes, they're a lot closer to us on almost every issue, but they have no love for Democrats per se, and they still don't understand who we are or what we represent. So the, the majority of people, especially young people, don't support the values of the Republican Party, but they still have a hard time supporting the Democratic Party. And they end up just not voting or thinking that both sides are evil and corrupt. And that's when Democrats lose elections. For a lot of these folks, they fundamentally don't think that there's a great deal of difference between Democrats and Republicans, right? What didn't you like about Clinton? Well, I, I kind of thought she was a crook. <laughs> I mean, they're all crooks. Basically, yeah. when you're voting in, in a presidential election, I feel that you're voting for the lesser of two evils. Again, that's Sue from Michigan, who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and then Donald Trump in the general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's a good way to look at it. Can anyone remember the last time you voted where you didn't feel like you were voting for the lesser of two evils? Someone you were excited to vote for? It was probably the first election that I ever voted in, and I voted for Jimmy Carter. Okay. I was 18 years old. I was pretty excited. Uh-huh. I thought he was going to, you know, do a good job. Okay. So Jimmy Carter, long time ago. <laughs> say anyway. Bill. Bill Clinton. Yeah, Bill Clinton? I'm, I'm old. I was, I, was, <laughs> I was happy with that. Bill Clinton, you were excited for Bill Clinton. Anyone else excited for I, someone they voted for? I liked Obama. I think I was excited about Obama, too. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a refreshing change. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you, those of you who voted for Obama, after eight years, how did you feel? If you could add another four, I'd give him to him. <laughs> Honestly. Okay, so you, you liked him at I the end, give you would have voted yeah, for more. Yeah. Same with you. I, I, I would probably vote. I would have probably voted for him again. So there has been an increase in the percentage of Americans who choose not to identify with either political party. I think there are two reasons why people who may functionally hold the views of a political party, choose not to identify with it. I think the first reason is that we don't need those labels to find a tribe or a community in politics, that you can now bond with people over particular issues that you care about. So I think, one, just the utility of the parties themselves has been diminished. But second is the baggage that comes with a label that is unnecessary. So there may not be upside to wearing the label, but then there also may be downside. If I identify myself as a Democrat, yes, I may agree with the Democratic Party on X number of issues. But if I don't agree with them on issue A or issue B or issue C, if I sign up for the party, am I implying that I'm okay with everything the party stands for? Why bother? 
young people, particularly millennials, they don't want to hear, you have to vote Democrat. Simone Sanders, Democratic strategist. So many millennials do not strongly identify with either political party. So it's very hard if you come to the millennial generation and you're saying the way to create change, the way to better the economy is to just vote Democrat, is to be a Democrat, is to work with the Democratic Party, because they don't believe in that. For me personally, I didn't register to vote Democrat until the Democratic primaries for the 2016 election, because that's the only time I really thought it mattered. I've never thought of myself as a Democrat, and I still don't, um, specifically because it's not liberal enough to accommodate my needs and my values. Um, I think that the youth is increasingly progressive, and we have felt alienated from the Democratic Party for as long as I can remember, because it tends to cling too much to the moderate zone. As a millennial, I, uh, I have some serious issues with the Democratic Party and actually unregistered from them a couple of years ago after Obama got reelected in 2012 because I was disappointed in his lack of radical left agenda that I was promised after campaigning and raising money for him. And after that, after he pursued a centrist agenda, I lost faith in the Democratic Party. What we found in some of the post-election research was that they don't feel as though that a vote for either of these two parties is fundamentally going to change anything. So it's a sense of powerlessness. This sense that Washington is gridlocked at best and corrupt at worst was definitely real among the voters I talked to. Most of them think Republicans are the main culprits, which was nice to hear. But way too many think the Democrats are a big part of the problem, too. It's a big reason why a lot of them chose not to identify as Democrats, even if they voted for Democrats in the past. But since all of these people did vote for Democrats in the past, I wanted to know why. A lot of people talked about economic issues, like in this exchange I had with a Texas voter. What makes you vote for Democrats when you vote for Democrats? Taxes. Taxes makes you vote. <laughs> taxes, some of their beliefs. And what part of taxes that they're... So where the, I guess, 1%, the rich ones, mm -hmm. they're getting breaks and all these other things. But the middle class, which is me, I'm suffering and paying the most and struggling. Well, you know, I just feel like there needs to be something that kind of balances it out. But there were other people who couldn't quite figure out where the party stands on the economy. What do you think the Democratic Party's position is on the economy? I don't think they do a very good job of defining a position or a solution. They missed an opportunity to jumpstart the economy you know, sort of like the Tennessee Valley Authority in the 30s where, okay, make work programs, improve infrastructure, people are working, and they're able to put money back into the system. Um, they really didn't jump on that. I think they spent more time on social issues and the environment, and that left the door open for Republicans, specifically Trump, to say, we're going to rebuild the infrastructure. That's a Democratic staple of putting people to work for, you know, basic jobs, and they took their eye off the ball. And Trump was smart enough, there's a sentence you'll, a phrase you'll never hear, <laughs> to see okay? there's Sorry. an opportunity. <laughs> you know? What does everyone else think about that? Well, they just think they're stuck. They see the numbers, they see what everybody's going through, and they're trying to help, but they can't. In the voicemails, we heard a lot about the party's supposed coziness with the wealthy. 
we still have a problem, realistic or not, with a perceived um, connection to Wall Street that we're still seen as too elitist in that way and too much in favor of um, corporations and the 1%. The Democratic Party has a huge issue at the top in terms of money and finance. The rich fund all the parties and the poor have zero voice. The single biggest problem that the Democrats have today is lack of a coherent economic vision. Celinda Lake, a longtime political pollster and strategist for Democrats. In the Roosevelt years, we were known as the New Deal Party. People knew what democratic economics was. In 1992, when I did the focus groups for Clinton-Gore, we would have 90% of the voters know what Republican economics was. They would say lower taxes, less government. They didn't necessarily agree with it, but they knew what it was. 80% of the voters today know what Trump economics is. But you've still got 40 or more percent of the voters who say, I'm not sure what democratic economics is. I supported Bernie for president, reluctantly held my nose and voted for Hillary because I did not believe she represented anybody but big money on Wall Street. That is the issue with Democratic Party, is getting back to the People's Party, representing the people who vote for them who represent the side of things that the Democrats only pay lip service to, and that is untenable. Hi, John Favreau. My name is Jessica Babbitt, and I live in the heart of Beto country in Austin, Texas. We need to embrace the popular idea of Medicare for all, and we need to run on that. I heard this a lot from the Michigan voters. And remember, these are the people who mostly voted for Trump. A couple of you mentioned health care. What do you think the Democratic Party should stand for when it comes to health care? Um, obviously, you know, President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act. Some have now called for single-payer health care, Medicare for all. There's all kinds of different proposals. Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Is there any proposals you find compelling, or what, what do you think? We should have the same kind of insurance like Canada has. We should be able to insure. They should be able to come up with some way where all Americans can be covered, whether or not you get it from your employer or not. I mean, if Canada can figure it out, I don't understand why we can't figure it out. And it works for them, and, you know. It seems like there's some third world countries that receive right. better yeah. health care yeah. <laughs> benefits yeah. than we do. I mean, honestly. Yeah. I think we should have Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. I think it should be, you know, as free as it can be after retirement age. Before retirement age, I think that people should pay a monthly premium based on their income. Mm -hmm. Right. Not their health condition. Right. Right. The thing about Obamacare that appealed to me, I was insured when it all began. However, my wife was also diagnosed with cancer. I wanted to move to another job there's not a chance in hell I'd be able to get insurance with her having a pre-existing condition like that. That was my reason for being in favor of it. There's obviously a debate in the party about how to guarantee affordable medical care to every American. But it's one of those issues where you're seeing a lot more consensus between folks on the left and the center left. That isn't the case with every issue. We're a Big Ten party. We contain multitudes. We're more diverse than the other party in terms of who we are, what we look like, and where we come from. We embrace openness and tolerance and small-d democracy. That's a good thing. But it also presents a challenge. Yes, hi. This is uh, Carol, and I'm in New Hampshire. I think the biggest problem and I, is the Democrats, we don't have a message. 
The Democrats aren't good on messaging. I mean, the Republicans, they get a message for each day, it seems like. And everybody that's on TV has that same message. They are like little soldiers. They stick to that message. And the Democrats, they don't have a single message. And, you know, I guess that's why we call the big tent or whatever. But I guess that's where they got the saying that trying to get Democrats to agree is like trying to herd cats. My name's Rick. I'm a lifelong Democrat. You know, I guess the sort of cliche is that it's, you know, not a party so much as a loose coalition of interest groups. Um, There's the whole big tent story, Um, but it often feels to me like really there's no tent at all. It's just a bunch of us out in a campground at best. Rick, my fellow masshole, makes a great point. Are Democrats really under one big tent? Is there a common thread to what we believe? Some core values that we can build a governing majority around? We'll take a look after the break. The Wilderness is brought to you by Swell. What kind of world do you want for your children? Oh, I'd like one where uh, Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, and a few others are in jail. Donald Trump Jr., you're very you're very hung up on that. I Tommy and I are not happy with Donald Trump. Jr. I know, but he just he he doesn't get me as angry as he gets you guys. I, I don't like him. Not a huge fan. He's just such a public douche. He's you know? a pitiable figure. What a pitiful person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and terrible. I not a fan. Again, not a fan. Anyway, enough about your friend Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> um, do you want a world for your children with cleaner air and water, greater yes. quality, less yes. reliance on fossil fuels? Sure. Whatever kind of world you want to see, achieving it takes voting for it with your wallet and choosing to buy from the companies that are working towards it. Absolutely. Thanks to Swell, there's now an easy way to support these innovative companies while also funding your future. Swell's portfolios of high-impact, high-growth potential companies target specific sectors like renewable energy, green technology, and disease eradication. And it's not just wishful thinking. Stocks of companies with high environmental and social impact have beaten the S&P 500 for 25 years. Take that, Philip Morris, which I don't (laughs) believe is still a company. I think it's called G now. Really? They changed their name to make themselves inscrutable, but we still screw them. We see you. (laughs) We we screw you. Progress and profit can coexist. So if you're ready to make a tangible impact on where the world is heading and invest in a future you believe in, open an account today at swellinvesting.com slash wilderness. You're going to get a $50 bonus. That's swellinvesting.com slash wilderness. Swell. Invest in progress. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now, back to the wilderness, presented by Honey. The easiest way to save money when shopping online. What does it mean to be a big tent party? I asked the voters in Texas their thoughts. I'm going to read a list of different constituency groups. Let me know if you think this group is generally more comfortable in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Okay. Um, Women. Depends on the woman, but Democratic. Mm Mm-hmm. It definitely depends on the woman, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. White men. Republican. 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 Gays and lesbians. Republican. Democratic. Oh, I'm sorry, Democrat. Democrat. <laughs> Democrat. The very wealthy. 
Republican, Republican. unless it's a Hollywood liberal, right. and then we're fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's noted, noted. Um, African Americans. Democratic. 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 Immigrants. Democratic. Democratic. Latinos. Democratic. The very poor. Democratic. Millennials. Democratic. 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 NRA members. Republican. Republican. Um, corporate executives. Republicans. Veterans. Uh, I feel like they can be in between. They can be in between. Yeah. That's a toss up. And people like you. Democratic. 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 Okay. You'll notice that people sorted most of these diverse social groups into the Democratic Party. And some people think this is one of the party's big challenges. That we're nothing more than a collection of different groups and identities advocating for our own specific policies. The pundits like to refer to this as identity politics. Democrats are, are kind of like the, the dog from Up, you know, where any, anything new that comes up that, uh, you know, defines liberal values, they jump on it. Uh, I, I, think, I think the focus, while I support it, I think the focus on, on the trans restroom issue uh, was, was not productive in terms of party politics. You hear this kind of thing a lot which is always frustrating because the party that made restrooms an issue was the Republicans, not the Democrats. But these perceptions still trickle down to voters. There's really a false dichotomy between what's often called identity politics and, I guess, other politics. Sean McElwee, co-founder of Data for Progress. The people who believe in economically progressive policies also believe in what is often sort of snidely demeaned as identity politics. I have a model where I show that the women who believe that it's extremely important to get more women elected to office also believe that we should raise the minimum wage. And women who don't believe it's important to get a woman elected to office are much less likely to support raising the minimum wage. So that movements for liberation that are based in gender and race and identity are also deeply committed to liberation economics. And so I do think that there's this attempt to pit them against each other, when in reality, you can't have one without the other. I just feel like the left has been so scared of being charged with identity politics that they're not willing to talk about what identity politics actually means. It shouldn't be hard to be against mass incarceration and unprosecuted murders of black men. It shouldn't be hard to argue for providing basic health care to women in the South where they have third world level maternal and infant mortality rates. It shouldn't be hard to argue against kidnapping mothers from the street in front of their children in order to deport them or to be four stronger unions and a decent living wage for most people. Just have the courage of your conviction or don't count on people to vote for you. Don't take our votes for granted and assume that women and minorities are gonna support Democrats just because the other option seems worse. We need to stand for things. We're having this debate now that we're gonna be a big tent. Yes, maybe. But not that big a tent. I mean, we stand for something. We are a pro-choice party. We are a party that believes in equality for LGBT. We are a party that believes in the DACA students. We're not going to forsake what we believe in. And young people really want you to stand for something. We have principles, and anybody who agrees with those principles is welcome in the tent. But if you don't agree with those principles, go become a Republican. 
We got into this a little bit earlier, but another one of the lingering debates from 2016 is whether Democrats should move to the left or to the center. It's a debate that's a bit overblown by the media, since most of the Democratic candidates in 2018 have fairly similar agendas, no matter where they're running. But it's still something I heard from people who participated in the focus groups and left voicemails. We're just afraid to think big. We're so scared that some people might be frightened off by our radical ideas that we just keep running to the center and we end up presenting this plan that's not inspiring. I believe that the Democratic Party has just gotten so left. We're fighting every single battle, um, getting offended by every little thing. And we have to pick our battle. Like, what's most important? I think the Democratic Party needs to embrace its progressive uh roots and and I think young people and progressives, the hard left, the giant movements across the country are looking for progressive leadership. They want something they can stand for, people they can believe in. I should just say so that your readers trust me, is a a very large sample, more than 60,000 respondents survey called the Cooperative Congressional Election Study. And what we did with that is we used techniques that actually party strategists and operatives and academics use to model support at the district level. And so we were able to model support for different policies like abortion choice to gun control regulations to immigration, and we were able to model that at the district level. And what we found is that in the average DCCC target district, there is majority support for progressive policies. The DCCC is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which works to elect Democrats to Congress. A target district is one that the DTRIP thinks will have a close, competitive race in 2018. We looked at immigration, uh, a path to citizenship, and that had majority support in the average DCCC target district. We looked at an assault weapons ban, which had majority support. We looked at things like allowing the EPA to regulate carbon dioxide, again, majority support in these districts. So on the core progressive base questions, a Democratic politician is not going to take a hit for standing on that policy. The data certainly backs up what Sean is saying. But in some of the redder parts of the country, there's still a sense among Democrats that the national party doesn't necessarily reflect their values or even pay much attention to them. Those of us who live in the reddest cities on earth, it feels, have felt abandoned by the Democratic Party forever. And so what I would love to see here is an acknowledgement by the National Party that Democrats in super red cities do exist and to invest in us accordingly. I work at the Texas legislature, and it's kind of easy to be very progressive on the national front and see all these big changes happening and be very excited. And then you go to the specific state legislatures and see extremely Republican bills and discussions. And I think that we need to have a more nuanced conversation on how people can be involved at the state level and make changes and elect people at the statewide level. Democrats just have not been engaged at that level for so long that it has just kind of given Republicans free reign. It's also true that in different parts of the country, 
not every Democrat has the same politics. Everybody in the party seems to think that they have to speak in absolutes with no give or understanding to the idea that candidates are going to be different and hold different ideals and in some cases not be quite as progressive or liberal in red states and that we should actually accept that, embrace that, in fact, so that we can win in places where we might not normally win. We need to be a little bit bigger tent on the abortion issue. I think the Democratic Party has a huge opportunity to say, hey, Christians who find life sacred, on our side, you will see that um, the Republican position is not really pro-life, it's only pro-birth, and it's really through our programs that you will actually prevent more abortions. We need to be a little bit more inclusive. Actually, we need to be a lot more inclusive. I'm a gun owner. I've got a lot of friends that are gun owners. Uh, Some are Democrats. I'm just wondering, again, if there is room for somebody who is socially conservative within the Democratic Party but can't absolutely stomach what has become of the Republican Party, especially as it relates to immigration and with race relations. It is clear that not all Democrats are going to be able to look like Elizabeth Warren. And I do think that there is always space to allow Democrats to run campaigns that fit their district. But the reality is things like the DREAM Act, things like raising taxes on the rich to fund uh, the social safety net, things like SHIP, things like abortion choice are actually quite popular across the nation, even in states that we think of as very, very conservative. We saw this with the example of Doug Jones winning. We were told before that race that the fact that he was pro-choice was going to doom his campaign, and he ended up winning that race. I'm always suspect of Democrats who say, we've got to spend 9% of our resources on this swinging medal, which, by the way, is shrinking and less of a swinging medal, and they're not so swinging, as opposed to doing, in fact, what we did in 2008 and 2012 that led to majorities. And by the way, along the way, we picked up House and Senate seats. And that is expand that electorate and bring in more and more of our voters. I think the Democrats take a lot of their constituents for granted, particularly people of color, um, the LGBT community, any marginalized groups. We can't just pay attention to them when it's time to get their vote, but then not follow through on the things that are important to them. And P.S., I think a lot of things that are important to them are not all that different from what might be important to white voters or non-marginalized voters. I see this healthy debate. Thad Shakir, national political director for the ACLU and former advisor to Harry Reid and Bernie Sanders. You think of the Republican Party during Obama, how discordant they look like. They were fighting over each other, Tea Party wings versus establishment wings versus like moderate wings over all manner of issues. And I think it was healthy for them in the sense that they found a voice. I think it's like bad politics and policies that have resulted from it, but at least they found something that generated winning out of all that. How will the moderate wings and the liberal progressive wings of the Democratic Party unite um, for the fall to actually get something done together? How will they work together? How will they address unity? How will they address compromise? Um, Because I feel like that's a leftover wound that's not being addressed, and it's like a slow-moving accident moving towards uh, a future election. I think it will 
work okay in the 2018 election, but when you get to a presidential election, I think that's going to be extremely problematic. You have a leaderless party that has got a lot of coalitions who are agitating for causes that we care deeply about, and they should be doing that. So if you have dreamers fighting for immigration rights, then you've got criminal justice reform, you've got voting rights reform, you've got Planned Parenthood and women's reproductive issues, a climate agenda, national security issues, all of them competing forcefully to change and modify and alter the direction of the party in a way that I think compels the next leader of it to listen to. And that's good. You should not be handing over as a free lunch to the Democratic Party that, like, my vote is yours, irrespective of what positions you take. This is the time for agitation. This is the time for compelling and pushing. And then knowing and understanding, and I think everyone does, that, you know, if it comes time to vote, like, you got to vote your values. Again, Celinda Lake. The strongest message is start with values. They don't start with acronyms. They don't start with policies. They don't start with bill numbers. They start with values. What is the orienting principle here? What are we trying to achieve? And when we have a message, we always have all of our issues in there, and then we dump a few more in for good because we don't want to leave anybody out. And what we haven't established is what's the central thing that we are for? What are we fighting for? What's the narrative that we're telling? What's the story that we're telling? Okay, we we'll play a little game. You know that the Democratic Party's emblem is the donkey, the Republican Party's emblem is the elephant. But take a minute and come up with, if you can, a slogan for each party. Okay, start with you, Sam. <laughs> Republicans, the party for the people, as long as they're rich. <laughs> uh, what about Democrats? Well, that was tougher. I don't know if this is exactly right or not, but... We are for the working man. We're just not sure how we're going to pay for it all. <laughs> okay, That's, that works. For the Democrats, working for progress. Okay. Mm. Democrats, we will work for you. For Democrat, it takes a village. To sum up everything we discussed tonight, if Democratic Party leaders were standing here right now, what would you say to them? Make schools safer. Truly have the citizens' best interest at heart. Uh-huh. I'd probably say thank you for actually, you know, trying <laughs> to do something. Okay. It's not easy. No, it's Adam, not. any messages? I'd probably tell them that, think about everyone overall, not just the poor or the rich or who deserves what. It's, it's all about being fair and... You, you just have to try. Try to be fair. Don't give up the good fight. <laughs> there you go. That's the, that's the one thing I would tell him. Okay. So we may be in the wilderness right now, but we're not completely lost. There's some confusion about what the Democratic Party stands for and disagreement over just how big our tent should be. And there's definitely a sense of cynicism and disgust with politics in general, a belief that most politicians are full of shit fight with each other way too much, and are way too focused on their own re-election. But underneath all that, most of the people we talked to and heard from seem to believe that Democrats once were, and could be again, a party that speaks to everyone, that includes everyone, that fights for everyone, regardless of race or class or gender. Being that kind of party 
requires more than a list of policies or constituencies. It requires a vision, a message, and messengers that can break through the daily shit show that is life in the Trump era. It also requires us to look within, to ask some hard questions, have some honest conversations, and do a lot of listening to a lot of different people. And that's what we're going to do here. In the next few episodes, we'll pick up where Celinda Lake left off by talking about the Democratic Party's values and vision around a few key topics. The economy, immigration, foreign policy, and next week, race. The Wilderness is written and directed by me, John Favreau of Crooked Media. It's produced by Zach Akers and Skip Bronke of Two Up and Ruth Lickman. Tanya Sominator of Crooked Media is our co-producer. Andrea B. Scott is our editor, and David Fox is our assistant editor. Our archival producer is Rebecca Kent, and our archival researcher is Gianna Jefferson. Music by Marty Fowler. Sound design and mixing by Joel Robbie. Tracy Lian is our lead interviewee researcher. Additional writing from Zach Akers and Andrea B. Scott. John Maynard and Dan Kelly were our recording engineers. Fact-checking by Anna Altman. Promo segment editing from Allison Grasso. Agency services from Ben Davis at WME. Legal services from Dean Bahat at Zifrin Brittenham and Chad Russo at Ramallah. Law. Clearance counsel is Catherine Ali Mohammadi from Donaldson and Caliph. Thanks for listening. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten, moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com.